and welcome. This is uh, 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I'm here to answer your questions from the live chat. Today, the first question coming in is about the phrase thoughts and prayers regarding tragedies. And so let me read it to you. This comes in from an anonymous source saying, following a tragedy, people will often say, quote, our thoughts and prayers are with all those who are affected, unquote, which is often followed by angry or mocking non-believer comments such as your prayers clearly aren't working, do something that will actually help, like changing the laws. What are some proper biblical ways to respond to that sort of position? Um, this is one of those areas where people get immediately heated so fast, like they get, the, and, and on both sides, I think, I think this can be the case, but people get heated, you know, upset, angry so quickly that having a calm, thoughtful discussion where we don't, we have like a nuanced view of an issue, it's, it's a little difficult, but I'm going to try <laughs> anyways. So, um, here's at least my thought process on this and for you guys to consider. So sometimes it can be helpful to affirm areas of agreement with individuals. And actually, if you're going to criticize certain prayers, the Bible's like pretty big on that too. God criticizes prayer, not because it's prayer, which is what this person's doing, but certain kinds of prayer, certain sorts of prayer, certain ways of using prayer. Those things are criticized. So praying for your own pleasures, not, not for uh, ultimately God's will, that's criticized, for instance. But prayer is never criticized in and of itself. So here's some areas we can have agreement on. Uh, thoughts and prayers can sometimes be used to remove my responsibility for behaving well, for acting, for taking action to do something. Um, so there, there's someone who's like, you know, I'm, I'm out of shape, um, I'm, I, I'm not physically well, and they refuse to exercise. But they're like, I keep praying and praying for God to help me, but they refuse to do any kind of exercise or eat well. That's where prayer is actually being used. Now, I'm not saying the prayer is inherently wrong. It's inherently good. But that's where prayer is being used, perhaps, as a band-aid to take away my personal responsibilities. So that what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sort of, you know, it's implied that this thing's not happening because it's not God's will. But yet I have some actions I should and could take that would perhaps make a big difference. In fact, maybe that's one reason why the prayer is not being answered is because I'm withholding myself from responsibility. So an example of this is James chapter two, verses 15 and 16. So we want to learn to think biblically about everything. So let's bring scripture into it, right? James 2, 15 and 16 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. So these are, these are uh, essentials, right? Clothing and food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now that's not a prayer, but this will apply to the issue. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's talking about quality of faith. People who say they believe, but they're not living it out. Just, just like those who say, oh, you know, be warmed and filled, but you don't do anything to help the person who you could help right now. Um, that is a criticism that is proper about the way that some people handle prayer. Another scripture that weighs in on this is 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. And then I'm going to push back. These are areas of agreement. Then I'll give some areas of disagreement with someone who's like, Clearly your, clearly your prayer is not working. Do something helpful instead because there's some significant issues with that. First John 3, 18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So there's the Bible recognizes, right? And every Christian should recognize there's a danger in loving with just my mouth, in loving in ideas, loving in cliches and loving with my statements, but not actually behaving in godly and loving ways that actually help a person in the situation they're going through. So that's significant. And I don't want to use prayer as a way of 
you know, dodging my responsibility. This is a real problem that people can have, and it's a real problem that uh, that Christians can fall into. So that's 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 for real. There's another situation where thoughts and prayers can be happening while they're in continual rebellion to God. And this we have lots of scripture on. I'll, I'll just summarize for you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, for instance, are three prophets who specifically rebuke the people for praying, not all prayer, but for praying while their lives are in rebellion to God, praying for for uh, for God to help when the thing they're going through, they're going through because of their sinful rebellion against God. And so th- this is, uh, th- that's actually a big issue. If you're, if my life is inconsistent with, with the will of God, yet I'm praying for God's blessings, that's a problem. So there's areas of agreement there, but there's also areas of disagreement. So here's, so the reason why I'd start with areas of agreement is because I'd want the person who says these things, your thoughts and prayers are a problem. I, I want to sort of disarm them a little bit by saying, look, there's some validity to what you're saying. But I can't really agree with it completely because of these things. So, um, is somebody actively doing something wrong by thinking and praying? <laughs> like, because this is how it comes off sometimes on Twitter is that it's as though by saying I'm thinking about your situation and I'm praying for you that I've actually harmed the person or that situation. That's weird. Like, that's just really strange to think that you're actually causing harm by merely by thinking and praying about somebody. That's And that's the way people wouldn't say that out loud, but that's kind of what's behind the claim sometimes. So I don't typically use the phrase, my thoughts and prayers are with you because I see that this is like a trigger phrase for people and it, they won't get what I'm trying to communicate. Um, but I don't really see a problem with the phrase by itself beyond triggering people phrase itself I'm thinking and praying about you like why is that so bad you know if 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 uh my my mom texts me hey son I'm thinking about you just want you to know thinking about you and praying for you I'm like how dare you like I would never say that to my mom I don't get it um but also here's an an interesting thought there are benefits of thoughts and prayers even from a secular viewpoint right because movements and this is consistent the movements around the world that get a lot of attention get a lot more help. So you could look at the, the the troubles that go on in the world that you're aware of, things that everybody knows about, and they tend to get more attention. They're in the news, they're on people's Twitter feeds, they're writing, I, my thoughts and prayers are in this situation. That tends to also be followed up by more monetary awareness. Anybody who's done uh, fundraising for nonprofits knows that awareness is the central issue when it comes to getting funds to be able to supply the needs of that ministry. So if people are all over the place tweeting and commenting and talking, saying, no, I'm thinking and praying about the situation, that even from a secular viewpoint is a benefit for the cause because awareness is that big of a deal, right? I mean, just think people, how much money people make, you know, pay for commercials to get you to think about issues <laughs> so that you might end up buying products. So I think that, you know, from a secular viewpoint, thoughts and prayers are actually do result in pragmatic help in the big picture, whether or not the, the individuals who are saying those things are themselves helping. Uh, from a Christian viewpoint, it, there's also more that's going on here. If you're a Christian and you're thinking and praying over an issue, there's more leverage in your conscience to cause you to do something about the issue as well. So your thoughts and prayers do tend to lead to more actions if you're not becoming a hypocrite in them. And it's also leverage for others to, to lean on, to say, hey, you know, you've been thinking and praying about this issue and you have this awareness that before God, you're accountable for your life and your choices and you know they need help and maybe you're in a position to help. So you're more inclined to help, right? That, that, you know, Christians do tend to do more charity things. And part of it's because of the Christian worldview that they have. 
the um, the final pushback I'll give on this is that prayers don't work. Um, you know, th your thoughts and prayers clearly are not helping is the statement that's there. Uh, this is this just comes down to, I think, a lot of people's assumptions about life. Um, whatever happens, if I assume it would have happened anyways, whether or not you were praying, then I'm going to think your prayers don't help. Right? But if, but if I believe in God and I think that God's active in the world and I'm assuming that he's got sovereign control in this world, then I'm going to believe that my prayers and, you know, are having an effect. But here we're just arguing from our assumptions. And for that, I mean, like I'm, you might recommend, um, oh, I had it over here somewhere. I thought, uh, you know, Craig Keener's book, maybe it's on the bookshelf back there. I don't know. I move my books around sometimes. Um, on miracles. I mean, he's did a lot of research to try to demonstrate evidence of God doing miraculous things with um, sort of like medical history being recorded, things like that. So he has a two volume series called Miracles that you might check out. Others have done work on this stuff as well. And I would recommend challenging some of those views that prayer is not doing anything. And besides this, a prayer for God's protection that is answered is a prayer that mostly you're not going to know it was answered because the bad thing just never happened. So yeah, it's just a presumption and we shouldn't treat God as a vending machine. If you input enough prayers, you get a certain response. He's not a vending machine. <laughs> it's kind of like you guys, if you all comment on a video, do this, Mike, do this thing. It doesn't mean I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's, I, I have, you know, my own decision making about what I will respond to and what not, what not to respond to. Anyway, I hope that this helps a little bit, like disarm a little bit with some agreement, but don't don't go overboard with that and then offer some pushback from a secular viewpoint. Unless you're so, you're just angry at people being religious, which is some people are, it, it does help. Even just when people are thinking and praying, it, do, it will, um, globally speaking, end up with more attention on an issue that will increase the, the funding and the works that are done to help impact that issue. Um, yeah, let's go to question number two. This is from Aruna Wary, who says, I would, uh, or is it Wari? I would like your views on flag waving as the Lord is my banner, dancing and body painting as part of creative worship in church. When I questioned these things, Zechariah 1 verses 20 through 21 was quoted at me or to me. Since creativity is inspired by God, am I being overly cautious and resisting change, which is from God? So let's look at Zechariah 1, 20 through 21. And let me say this. Um, uh, there are some who feel like there are very strict rules about what what every church should or shouldn't do during a time of worship. And I tend to move much more to the liberty side of things. And I think there are principles that we need to preserve. That That's what those on the liberty side sometimes forget, is that there are these important principles that should be observed. But I think that the expression of those principles can have a lot of variety depending on the culture and the time and the place where you're at. Um, so that's just my starting point is I care more about the principles and less about rules like what instruments can you use? Can there be a guitar solo during worship? Can there, uh, can people stand as they want or do they have to stand as a group? Can there be dancing? Can there not be dancing? Let me go to the text of scripture then. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, this is Zechariah 1, 20 and 21. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. I think I must have gone to the wrong passage. That couldn't have been what you were thinking. Or is there something I'm misunderstanding? I mean, there's their craftsmen. They're... Hmm. 
I'm just rereading the question here. I don't, so I, I'm sorry guys, I don't see the connection to that, that topic. I don't know, I don't see it. Maybe it's there and I'm just missing something. So anyways, you know, I'm live streaming, I'm handling all the data, all the, all the um, tech stuff while I do this. So maybe I'm just too distracted to notice the connection. Uh, let me say this, uh, there are scriptures that can be used to push back and suggest dancing's okay. David danced before the Lord, we have that. Uh, now it's true that this was not institutional, this wasn't something that happened on a regular basis, this was like a really, really special moment where the tabernacle's being brought back and David's rejoicing because he feels as though they had God um, judge them for mishandling the tabernacle and now there's like this restoration and he's he's thrilled, he's excited, it's like God's blessing on Israel. Anyway, this is like a once in a lifetime moment and he dances and that's that's seen there uh, but it's not in a congregational gathering actually so a little bit harder to apply that we don't have any dancing i'm aware of in the new testament certainly not as part of a regular worship service of the church so dancing's one where i say um I don't have a lot of biblical commentary on dancing as part of a New Testament church experience. There are those, however, who dance before the Lord in other circumstances. You know, Miriam does a song and the women are dancing and it was probably not at all like modern seductive style dancing. It was probably just very, very um, wholesome and celebratory dancing such that you never see, at least in American culture, you basically never see it in our culture. And so we associate dancing with certain kind of seductive behaviors, generally speaking, um, or, or macho behaviors, generally speaking, other things like that. So, um, yeah, can you do this as a creative worship? Well, here's the principles that I'm going to try to apply. Uh, worship is about God, not us. And if I'm doing something that transfers attention from God to individuals in the congregation that can be negative. So that sometimes has to do with the tolerances of the culture. So in the culture, if they if they're a very musical culture and they love celebrating music, someone doing a guitar solo is just uplifting and part of the worship. But if you walk into another church where they've only ever had someone playing hymns on a piano and someone else comes in and he's doing a solo, it could be received poorly by the people because of their musical culture. And so I wouldn't do it in that environment. But in another environment, I would. And when it comes to dancing, I would make sure to remove all seductive and, and sinful qualities and make sure it doesn't turn into showboating of the, in the congregation. But if it is a genuine expression of joy before the Lord, it can find a proper expression in a church where that's the culture understands it in that proper place. So the principle of giving God glory stays in place, not stumbling your brothers and sisters um, stays in place and um, not turning worship into a competition event between individuals that stays in place. So it, to me, it, it's all very cultural, uh, what, what would be appropriate or not, and the impact it's having on the glory of God. Now, personally, I don't want to be in a service where people are dancing around, but that, but I get it. That's just me. Like, I don't want that. I wouldn't enjoy that. I would try to just ignore it to the best of my ability as I worship the Lord. But, but what biblical warrant do I have to say that no one's allowed to do that? Because it would be hard for me to be in that environment. I don't really have that warrant. But what warrant do I have to say that everyone has to accept waving flags and dancing in every congregation or they're, or they're quenching the spirit? Well, that's, I'm going to say something bold here. That could be bordering on a type of arrogance where whatever I enjoy doing before the Lord as I worship becomes the spirit is guiding me in this. And then anyone who doesn't want me to do it there, 
they're quenching the spirit. You see what I've done is I've elevated something I like as I worship the Lord, something I enjoy, and I've elevated it to a spirit-inspired behavior that everyone else has to tolerate lest they be unspiritual. That's not an act of love anymore because I'm no longer thinking in my congregational worship, how is my behavior affecting the worship of everyone else? Instead, it's just me. It's me and my exalted experience with God and like, oh, as the spirit leads me and guides me and, and this sort of overly, like I've seen people, once I was, I was leading worship at a, at a place one time. And here's an example of, of this. Um, there was a guy who was really loving it. Okay. He was innocent in his heart as far as I know, just really loving the worship and enjoying it. He got up and he kind of like rocked back and forth and he walked to the very back of the room. And then he walked back to the front of the room, maybe like 60, 70 feet. And then he walked back around and back. And then at the end, he came up to me afterwards and he was like, man, I was so in the spirit. Like I just like, I ended up way over there. And then I came all the way back and, and he was delighted to think that this was some sort of like inspired movement from the Holy Spirit. And while it wasn't inherently bad in that, in that setting, it, he wasn't in that particular setting. He wasn't stumbling. anybody, wasn't causing problems for anybody. I didn't care that he was wandering around, but it was a little odd that he put so much weight on his random movements that he thought this was the Holy Spirit leading him, which ends up creating a battle over what's allowed and not allowed in worship. And instead of thinking, <laughs> have I been laboring this point? Instead of thinking, am I helping set a tone for everyone to freely worship God without distraction or Am I putting a burden on others based upon my own desires that I'm projecting onto the Holy Spirit? That's the question I have. And I think the culture of the church might answer that question. I hope that helps. <laughs> uh, number three, anonymous question says, our pastor and denomination as a whole requires that any woman serving, even volunteers, must only wear skirts and that only the King James Version is God's word. Every other version is a perversion and requires tithing. Are these things spiritual abuse? Um, okay, uh, three issues. Women have to wear skirts. Yeah, anybody who volunteers uh, or serves in any way. Um, King James Version is the only one and every other version is wrong, is, per is perverted in some sense, and they have to tithe. And now the King James Version is a reliable translation. There are text choices, right, about on, on, on some, most of it we agree on everything, but there's text choices on some of the uh, translation verses, basically, where I would go with the newer translations personally. Um, but it's a, it's a reliable, generally reliable translation. And if you do a little bit of work, you can overcome the language differences. You just, you kind of need to look up some stuff in an old dictionary <laughs> and you're fine. Um, a lot of people won't do that work and they'll struggle with that. Um, but teaching people that every other Bible is a perversion is simply not true. And it will cause, it will cause harm. Do what I call that spiritual abuse though. Let's take the Bible translation issue. What I call that spiritual abuse. I mean, to me, I, I wouldn't bring that up to the level of spiritual abuse, not that it couldn't become that. But when I think of spiritual abuse, I think of something more extreme in the sense of personal harm I'm causing you. So if you're privately thinking, oh, the, the ESV is a bad perverted, the NIV is the not inspired version. If you're, if you're privately thinking those things, 
it, it affects your judgment of other believers who you mostly aren't interacting with, I hope. <laughs> um, you, it might turn you into one who abuses them because you think so poorly of them and so poorly of that translation. But I don't know that you're being directly abused. You might actually become an abuser if you have those views. It's possible. Um, but I don't know if I would say that. Uh, but when it comes to the skirt thing, um, skirts, let me say there's a correlation here between King James Version and skirt wearing. That is, King James Version is sort of time trapped in a particular moment in time, that translation. And you have to learn that moment of time to understand the translation better. Wearing skirts only, there's a principle that's biblical, which is guys wear guy clothes, girls wear girl clothes. But what time are you trapping yourself in in that skirts are the only girl's clothing. That's that's the issue here. So what I've done is I've created a culture within the culture, right? In our broader culture, wherever your church is, it is not true that women only wear skirts. It is not true that, that it's uh, not womanly to wear something other than a skirt. That's not true in your broader culture. It's only true in your church culture. Your church culture is sort of time-trapped somewhere else. And they think they're holding this biblical principle of guys wear guys clothes, girls wear girls clothes. That's a good biblical principle that male, female really does matter. And these are important principles to push today. But they're pushing it through the lens of, uh, of culture, not scripture. And it's a culture that's outdated for their time. So that's, that's causing problems. Now, I don't care personally. I mean, I don't see it as a big deal. Someone's like, well, yeah, whenever you go to church, you got to wear a skirt. I mean, someone told me I had to wear a tie every time I went to church. I'd probably just wear a tie. I, I I wouldn't think they were right, but I wouldn't see it as a big deal personally. I just, it's just clothes. I don't see why it matters that much, but making it a rule for everybody else is weird. And those types of rules can create environments where you have, um, extra biblical principles that can develop into what you're concerned about spiritual abuse. When you add all these things up, they can become that the tithing issue. I want to talk about though, briefly, um, I want to say this as clear as I can. Giving is expected for New Testament Christians, but the amount you give is not. Giving's expected uh, to, you know, pay for the communal things you enjoy as, as in, in the church, right? The building, the air conditioning, the, the, the snacks or the bulletins, the, just the, the cleaning of, of things, and also to pay for those who are serving you, to pay them wages, right? So giving your pastor a paycheck and those who are really devoting them time, their time to the service of the saints, to not pay them is cruel. I mean, it is actually cruel. Like it's, it's great if they're willing to do it without being paid, but it's actually cruel. Imagine if I hired somebody, right? Where they're gonna spend all their time and energy doing some things for me and I'm never gonna pay them. Now there's a place for this. There's a place for volunteer work. But when you have a pastor who's volunteering 50, 60 hours a week, maybe 40 hours a week, and he's not being being paid for that and he's living in poverty, that, I mean, I love his heart to do it anyways, but that's kind of cruel that the congregation doesn't care about him and thinks so lowly of his service. That being said, tithing, that word tithe means 10%. That rule, 10%, is not, is not biblical. Oh, but it's in the Bible, but it's in the Old Testament. The Levites were to give 10%. Um, and I have teaching on this. You guys can check out BibleThinker.org. Just type tithing into our little clip search feature, right? You click the search button, then go to the clip search feature. You got to find those words, clip search, and you'll type tithing. You'll get uh, you'll get data on that. Um, where I go through scripture specifically. Now, the, the thing is that if I tell, let's say that I tell you that you have to give 10%. 
Now it's fine that you want to trust God with your finances, but um, but this is like skirts, King James only, and ten percent. These are rules that are not biblical, but they're all being given to the congregation. At what point do you call that spiritual abuse? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not entirely sure. It can become that way. And it's an environment where, you know, you're going to be more prone to it because you have someone in position who's making all these rules that are not really true, not really biblical. So maybe this is better. Um, don't worry about when you call it spiritual abuse, but rather worry about when you say, um, I'm not going to follow that rule. I don't have to only read the King James Version. Hey, I will happily, you know, I'll bring the King James Version to church for the sake of unity in the, in the, in the body. I'll wear a skirt in church for, for, not me, but for you, for girls. Um, I'll wear a skirt in church for the sake of unity in the body. But if I'm out shopping and you see me wearing pants and you make a big deal about it, I'm going to tell you, I do that for the sake of my love for the body. I don't want to stumble them, but I don't think that rule is biblical. And I don't need to give 10%. I'm going to give according to how I have freely chosen to give to support the church. Now, maybe that means giving more than 10%. Maybe that means less, but I don't think it's percentage bound. And if your church pushes on you, right, then that's them pushing on you in your legitimate freedoms in Christ. And you can reject that. God help you. Number four, parent warning. Okay, this is parent warning. This is, uh, if, if there's a, a parent, if, if, there's, if there's kids listening, now is where you want to pause, skip, or go watch something else. Uh, all right, there was your warning. Uh, Pill of Laughter says, hey, Pastor Mike, greetings. What's your advice on how to approach Numbers 31, the passage about sex slaves? God bless your ministry. It's really had an impact on my life. Um, I mean, it's been a little while since I looked at this passage, so I'm going to have to just read it with you guys and hope that off the top of my head, something fruitful flows. <laughs> um, try to find the relevant section. This is where verses help for those asking questions. It's great if you say Numbers 31 versus this through that, because then I can avoid this part right here where I'm, I don't have the, the whole Bible memorized, believe it or not. Um, maybe if someone in the live chat could help me find the verses, it's difficult to scan these with my eyes while talking to you while running a stream. Someone can do that, but I don't know how to do that. I'm going to wait a second because this is, this is important. Someone tell me the verses in Numbers 31. Maybe um, Pill of Laughter could do that. I'm just waiting. Because <laughs> I can't find them. Just a reminder to you guys. Um, so it's 52 verses in this, in this chapter. I'm, I'm going to wait until someone can tell me the verses. The Bible doesn't have sex slaves. <laughs> I just want the verses so I can read them. Oh, is it verse 15 through 18? Let's read those and see. Yeah, okay, here we go. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate that. Don't come down on a pillow of laughter. He doesn't know what it's like being me. All right, um, Moses said to them, have you let all these women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act in treacherous act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord 
Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known a man, this is probably, this is the text I'll focus on. There's, there's at least three major issues in this little section, but this is what he's asking about. All the young girls who have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. So the, um, the, the brief, brief little background reminder, and we have to have the background is that uh, the Midianites wanted to um, ruin the Israelites. And they had the king of Midian knew that God was protecting them and they couldn't do this. And so Balaam counseled them. Well, the reason why you can't get them, Balaam was this, this, this prophet, right? He counseled, the reason why you can't get them is because they're honoring God. And as long as they're honoring God and serving God, Israel will be protected by God. But if you can get them to sin against God, then you don't, you don't have to attack them. God will deal with them for you. And so... The way that Midian does this is they send women to the Israelites to fornicate with them. And then through relationships with these women, through concubines, just prostitution, fornication, um, and other things, they cause them to sin against God and they bring in these false idols. Oh yes, you can sleep with me. You just have to bat a little pinch of incense over to this false God right here. And um, how many how many guys would uh, would 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 take that deal? So these women were part of seducing the Israelite men in order to lead them into idolatry. So they're going to be punished as well. What's the story though? And there's other issues to cover here, but the question's about verse 18. What about these young girls that have not known a man by lying with him? What does that mean? Keep them alive for yourselves. Um, for this, what happens is some skeptics just fill in the blank with their imagination. Keep them alive for yourself. Oh, so you could sleep with them all you want. And then they become sex slaves. That's the question that was asked. Sex slaves. Doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that, does it? The women could either be servants or they could be potential wives. In fact, they weren't there just for sexual usage, which is why they had to be women who had not known a man because they couldn't be part of that whole sex system that was going on and the temptation that was going on there. So in order to fill in the blank without our imaginations, but with scripture, what we need to ask is what does the Bible talk? What does the Bible say about the rules for Israelites when it comes to female servants? And there are specific rules in scripture. And so some of the rules are um, you, uh, you, you can't just sleep around with these women. Another rule is if you do take a woman who's a servant to be a wife, she has to legitimately be your wife. You have... I, I do not make this up, okay? This has been the biblical, the biblical teaching on this. In the Old Testament, you take a servant to be your wife, you have to really make her a wife. And if you decide to send her away, if you decide to, to, to divorce her, you have to send her out with, with, the, with basically the alimony of a wife, the, the payments that you would give to a wife as you send her out. And she will not go fr from being a servant to your wife to being a servant again. She will go free with extra money so she can live on her own. The rules that we have are elevating the rights of women in these situations. You don't have sex slaves in ancient Israel. It's when we use our imagination to fill in the blanks on these vague passages, or at least brief passages, that it looks that way to people. Another rule was um, if a man was to take, uh, you know, this a servant as a wife, he can't treat her as a secondary wife if he's already married. Now, I don't think this is the Bible endorsing polygamy. Again, I think this is taking practices they're already doing. And elevating the rights of the people who would be very likely to be oppressed and abused within those practices. That's what seems to be consistent. Just like when Jesus says, you know, uh, this is why God allowed you to divorce because the hardness of your hearts in the, old, in the Old Testament law. 
but yet it's not the ideal. So this isn't the ideal, but the, but the elevation of the rights of those who would be weak or who would be abused, who would be more likely to be oppressed, that's what we see consistently in the Old Testament. I hope that helps. Those are a few thoughts off the, off the top of my head. Um, nothing about being sex slaves. And anybody who says that, I, I fear two things. One, they're very angry or upset or emotionally stirred up on the topic because of the, t the way they've viewed it. But two, they got there without real indications of scripture. Like they got there with, with their imagination, but not with the clear teaching that we find in the Bible. Now, if you get there that way, it might be hard to use clear teachings to get you out of there because you people will sometimes perceive someone like me. Well, here's the here's the things you didn't consider. They consider this manipulation to try to take away the the mean stuff in the Bible. And once they're thinking this about you, um, you're just a dirty apologist. You're not <laughs> you're not someone to reason with and think about. You're you're a dirty apologist, and um, that's fine. I'm not going to take that to bed with me, but it does mean that it will it it, it will be very difficult for someone to correct you. Because anybody who tries to correct you, you see as dirty. All right, we'll go to the next question. How do I know if I'm called to preach? My family depends on my income and I don't want to unwisely step into anything against God's will. But I feel I must evangelize more, much more than I can now. Okay, let me read this one, one more time and really think about this. How do I know if I'm called to preach? My family depends on my income and I don't want to unwisely step into anything against God's will, but I feel I must evangelize more than I can now. Um, I mean, if you're, I think that your first priority right now is taking care of your family's expenses. And, and let me give you, let me give you a reason for that. That's not about not trusting God or anything along those lines, right? Um, Um, it's in the pastoral epistles, first Timothy five, eight. Okay. This is, this is interesting because, um, it relates to your situation a little bit. It says if, if anyone does not provide for his own relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So this means to me that even though you feel that you have this burning desire to go and evangelize more or go and preach more, uh, and by this, I'm, I'm assuming you're doing evangelism and not like uh, ministry to the body, like within, a, within like say a Christian environment. But when you want to do these things more, until those things naturally are supporting you, you have to continue that job and make sure you're taking care of your family because that is, a, is, is your priority. It's not because you're trusting in material things. It's because you see these human beings before you and know that you're responsible for providing for them. And that is, that is something that comes like as a requirement for every Christian. What I, what I don't like is how some, it, this happened many years ago, but some would teach people to go into the mission field and they're like, don't even worry about your family. Don't worry about how God will provide. And there is a time to do that. You know, you know what it is when God clearly shows you that that applies to your situation and you better be right. Cause if you're wrong, you put your whole family on the line. Like it's such a huge issue. Like I would have to absolutely know God was telling me to do that. Otherwise I'm going to go to the default rule, which is provide for your family. So you could do that and still do ministry on the side. Now you might feel like, but I need to do more. I need to do more. I'm not so sure. <clears throat> I was thinking about this the other day and it was about Paul, the apostle being a tent maker. You know, a lot of people who support my ministry, you guys enable me to do this full time. This is what I do all the time. I study all the time so I can produce content. 
and hopefully bless people. And it seems like the most efficient thing. Like the point at which it became like self-sustaining, it was like, yes, I could just do this. That's all I do is prep, 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 teach, 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 prep, 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 teach, teach, teach. And, and it means that over the next course of, you know, 20, 30 years, I'm going to kick out so much content helping people learn to think biblically. And, and it, would, it would seem to these people, to those of you who support me, it would seem like it's a tragedy if I had to say work a full-time job or even like 20, 25 hours a week in addition to all that I'm doing, it would slow me down a lot. And I would, I would think I'd agree with you on that. But here's a weird thing. Paul the Apostle had a more important ministry than me, and he made tents when he was in Corinth. Why, why did he make tents? All he had to do was ask people for more support, and they probably would have given it to him. But he felt that for his evangelistic outreach in that environment, he wouldn't ask. And he, he was clear. He goes, I have a right. I could ask, but I won't because of the way I want you to hear the gospel because of your environment. I, you need to hear it this way without me asking anything. And so he, he spent hours and hours building tents that could have been spent preaching and evangelizing. Paul, the apostle, if, if that's okay for him and God set him up as an example, then it's okay for you. And so, you know, God may provide your situation. I've had plenty of times where I was, um, I was, I was doing youth ministry, working a full-time job apart from the church, not getting paid a penny where I was doing, uh, you know, teaching Wednesday services, doing Friday night uh, events with the students, Sunday mornings and every other youth thing you can, you can imagine. It was just, I, I was single at the time. So it was easier, right? I'd work full-time. I would go, I would go home and any day I wasn't at church, I was studying or prepping for something that where I was at church. That was it. Saturday, the entire day I spent studying and preparing for Sunday morning because I didn't have time the other days. That was totally fine. There was nothing wrong with it. Um, both scenarios are fine. Unless God is clearly showing you something, I think you need to prepare, you need to take care of your family as a top priority, 1 Timothy 5.8. And when God opens the door, you step through when, it's, when it looks secure. Uh, that seems like wisdom to me. There's a time where Jesus sent the apostles out with nothing. I know. But that doesn't mean he's sending everybody out with nothing. There were lessons being taught in that scenario. The general rule is a man needs to provide for his family. Number six, Stephanie Wafer says, I've appreciated your Women in Ministry series so much. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm really grateful for that. I'll tell you what, it's a grind. <laughs> Regarding Deborah, why do you suppose her name is not mentioned with the other four judges in Hebrews 11.32, but Barak is mentioned? Um... I, that's an interesting question. I wonder why that is. I've never thought about that. So, you know, we have a number of judges that aren't mentioned in that passage, but definitely one of them is Deborah. Um, I can notice one thing immediately, and that is that all of these judges, including David, um, but not Samuel, but all the other ones, they fought. They actually led the military. And so Gideon led the military. Barak led the military. Uh, he wasn't the judge like Deborah was, but he was the military leader. Samson led, in a sense, he led the military. He actually stepped out into fighting. Um, I, I guess he didn't lead an army, but I'll say this. They all engaged in warfare, physical warfare. Jephthah did. He delivered the nation when they were they were, um, they were were being oppressed, him and his um, worthless men. I think that's a really interesting thing in Jephthah's story. David led military as well. Um, but then the other ones, Samuel and the prophets are different, a different category. 
so that that wouldn't that wouldn't fit. Maybe with Deborah, the reason why she's not mentioned there is because it was talking here in this quick section. At least with those four names, we're talking about people who did fighting, and Deborah didn't do the fighting. So that that could be why he goes. They through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Uh, Deborah didn't actually get into any sort of altercations in her time. She just spoke the truth. But like say, um, these other individuals seem like they actually went through more, more hardship that we're aware of, where their faith was engaged in a moment where they could have died. So that's what I'm. I'm just guessing. Just guessing here based on that. All right, we'll go to the next question. And uh, there's no more questions for today. I've got all 20 ready to go. Number seven is, how should mental health issues affect dating for Christians, both one's own issues and a spouse candidate's potential issues, like someone who you think you might want to marry? Overall, what things should be considered when choosing to start dating? You know what I look at is I look at the book of Proverbs as instructions of the kind of person you want to be and the kind of person you want to marry. I think Proverbs is really good on this because Proverbs helps you see whether that person is wise or not. And you you don't often know people when you're first trying to date them. You know the face they put up, even when they don't, I don't know if they're trying or not, but even when they, when they, uh, when they don't admit it, they're sometimes putting up these fake versions of themselves that come down over time, which is why you don't want to rush into relationships, generally speaking. Not like it's, some of you have rushed into relationships and you're very blessed. Good for you. I'm just saying it's not a good rule to put up for everybody. Just pick someone and go for it. Um, uh, that works for some people. And for others, you know, you get to know them and you find out that uh, there's major issues. How do mental health issues factor in? I think mental health issues factor in when they when they become things where a person cannot handle basic human responsibilities, like raising a child. Are your mental health issues going to affect your ability to raise a child? Then you may not want to marry that person. Um, are those mental health issues uh, going to affect their ability to to work or to keep a home or you know to interact in a healthy long term relationship? Um, so it's really not like are you diagnosed with this mental illness, then I won't be with you. It's rather, how does that mental illness affect you in the day-to-day -day life? So I don't look at the diagnosis. I look at the behavior. That, that at least is how I would approach it for you to consider. Maybe there's another way to look at it. But the book of Proverbs, man. Um, let me give you an example. Um, this is Proverbs 24, 24. I think this is pretty relevant. Ladies, listen up. <laughs> Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go to a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Don't marry angry people. I mean, if you know if you know a person, you're like, oh, they're this and that and this and that, but boy, they sure have a crazy temper. But they would never, it would never turn on me. I'm the I'm the special, you know, rose in the garden, and and they would never have that attitude towards me. Yeah, well. <laughs> Uh, it will happen. If if I shouldn't make friendship where I'm con not just casual friendship, but like friendship, we walk together as friends. If I shouldn't do this with someone who's given to anger, how much more should I not marry that person? How about a lazy person? Scripture warns against laziness. Don't marry a lazy person. Really what we do when we're very young is we think, well, they're cool and pretty and they're attractive and I like them. Um, those things are less important the longer you're married. <laughs> and so I think that we should look at godly character as, as probably the chief issues to consider when considering marriage. 
I hope that some of that will give you some thoughts and some things to consider, some, uh, some help. Let's go to um, Skip Minnis, who has a question saying, Hi, Mike, love your ministry. What do you think Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, when he says to desire the best gifts? Skip, thanks, man. Appreciate you being here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Paul says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, or some translations put it the best gifts. And I will still show, I, I will show you a still more excellent way. So he wants us to desire the best gifts. I think that the the way he talks earlier and later in the chapter, we we see what he means by the best gifts. Um, let me see if I can find a section um, where he just discusses this. Um, In 1 Corinthians 12, earlier on, he's talking about how the purpose of the gifts is um, to bless others and to minister to them. Um, in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about the, the the danger of having gifts but not being loving and how you're basically pointless. You have all these gifts, but you're not loving. But later he talks about prophecy in particular. Um, yeah, here we go. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. I mean, that kind of helps answer that question when he says, desire the best gifts. Now, before he talks about the best gifts, 1 Corinthians 13 shows up and he tells you love is, is most important. Love is the key ingredient in any gifting. That's the thing you should chase after the most. But when it comes to like ranking gifts, Paul seems to rank the gifts based on how much they help people. And that's it. They're important based on how much they help people. Well, prophesy. Prophecy helps people. So he says, for one who speaks in a tongue, speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters the mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. His, the very nature here is that, hey, when you speak in tongues, unless there's interpretation, there's, it's a private experience between you and God. But prophecy blesses and helps others. Paul's rule is what helps people the most is the best gift prophecy then is is lifted up as being pretty important the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church now i want you all to speak in tongues but even more to prophesy the one who prophes prophesies uh, is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up so again it's not actually the prophecy is better than tongues it's that when, when you say things to people that they can understand, they're, they're more benefited. When you speak in tongues, they're not. But if there's an interpretation, then the church is built up. So it's the same thing. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Those are all speaking things that are not necessarily prophetic in nature, but they're all speaking related. Even if lifeless instruments such as a flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, with your tongue, you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and no one is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, you guys want manifestations? Strive to excel not just in manifestations, excel in building up the church. So do you get the idea that Paul's trying to move them from a focus on just having spiritual gifts to like feel like the spirit's moving in their midst versus focusing on helping others when they're gathered together 
I want to bless someone else. I want to help others. I want to see the, the body built up. I don't need to have a spiritual experience. I want to see spiritual blessings upon others. It's a, it's, Paul is moving them from being focused, I think, on spiritual, a spiritual high to being focused on blessing others. And this is, of course, in the scripture because churches that really focus on the gifts can easily move to where it's all about, you know, did you get a special moment? Did, did somebody come up and call you out and say, God, God's really, his hand is on you. And even though there's no information there to help anybody, like that was, that was the biggest moment for you. You know, does it turn into like, whoa, look at how spiritual that person is. They, they're always, they always have something to say. Or is it about blessing and ministering to others? Yeah, that's how I would process that. Number nine, Mike Grigas says, is it biblical to make abortion unavailable to others by law? Or is it better to support organizations like Mom's House who help single moms with having a baby? Thanks for your ministry. Um, I think this is a classic, why do I, why don't I do both situation? I don't know what Mom's House is, but let's just say they're helping single moms having with having babies. I think that why, why on earth would you not do both? It's a total myth from the pro-choice side that pro-life people don't care about babies after they're born. Pro-life organizations do way more to help with women after a, a childbirth than any pro-choice organization does like way way more by far so this is just a total lie it's just it's what it is is it's just like a way of attacking well you're not doing enough after they're born and and you know the pro the pro uh, life response is often even if i did nothing even if that was true it doesn't change the fact that you can't just go and kill people um you know just because they're not born right and i had a conversation with somebody once about this and i i said they're like, well, if you're not going to help them after they're born, how can you say that, you know, you can't abort, have an abortion before? And I said, let's say that my neighbor's beating their, their children and I know it. And I'm going to call the police and I'm going to report them. And I'm gonna like, you, we've got to stop this abuse from going on. But then the cop answers the phone and says, but Mike, are you going to adopt these children and care for them for the rest of your life? Because if you're not going to take care of them, then I'm not going to do anything to stop this abuse. Does that make sense? And I think for some people it does make sense. Um, I think that there's there's a, a moral bankruptcy in the way they're thinking, but I think for some people that does make sense. You know, like if 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 I was um, like w once I I saw a girl, I was driving down the street and I saw a girl getting jumped by by another girl, just bullied by her, right? Like she's just trying to get away, and this girl grabs her by the hair and she gets down and just starts beating the tar out of her. And I drove my car up real close to them and I started honking my horn just to stop this from happening. This wasn't even a fight. This was just a one-sided beatdown. And <clears throat> I didn't proceed to like pay for that girl's education in her future. I, I didn't get her name even. I just stopped that moment of violence from happening. Did I do something wrong? Was I a hypocrite because I helped in a moment but didn't help after? Like this is, this is a really weird way of thinking. It would cause us to basically never help anybody. And, um, and on the flip side, pro-life organizations do help all the time. So is it biblical to make ab uh, abortion unavailable to others by law? Uh, yes, it's biblical because God's instituted governments clearly from the teaching of scripture that they are to, they're required to defend innocent life from death. This is one of the key features of government is not letting murder happen. And abortion is murder by any realistic definition of the word. So Yes, absolutely. That's a biblical mandate. God, God judges nations for, for not dealing with the innocent blood that is being spilled. And so that's a biblical mandate across the board. It's not just about the Old Testament law. It's about how God judges all nations. But can you also support organizations like Mom's House? Yes, why not? Why, why would I pick between them 
why not make a law that makes abortion illegal and help single mothers? Like, why on earth would I pick one and not do the other? Do I, am I, let me flip the tables on the pro-choice person here and say, you only care about kids after they're born. How on earth do you only care about them after they're born? What's wrong with you? How can you help mothers after their kids are born, but never before? You don't help the children before they're born. What's wrong with you? Do you get the idea? It, it's just a talking point. On to the next one. Number 10, Linz E says, does Genesis lead us to believe that if every person came from Adam, then there was an incest between Adam and Eve's offspring to create mankind? Thank you for your ministry. Um, this, this is like, there's, there's basically two views, two perspectives that people take. Now, when it comes to Genesis, there's lots I don't know. A lot of people hear me, you always hear me talking about things I, I think are true. I don't usually talk about things I don't know, but when the Q&A, especially this stuff comes up, there's lots of things I don't know. I don't really know exactly what my angle is on Genesis 1 through 11. And I've quietly been personally very obsessed with this issue and I just haven't come to resolution on it. Now, let me tell you what I'm resolved on. This is key. I'm resolved that Genesis is God's word, that what it says is true. What I'm not resolved on is how I'm supposed to understand what it says in some places. Here's an example. Um, you know, you would think Adam and Eve, okay, they had kids. Okay, that's not in incest by any by any measure. Adam, Eve was created from Adam, but this is not, they don't have a parentage relationship. Um, but their kids, right? They would have had to have had incest in order, for, at least for a couple generations, in order for them to be producing offspring. And after that, things would be split up enough that we wouldn't consider it in modern times uh, incest. So the rescue that people have for this often is like, hey, you know, their DNA was so pure. We know that incest is, uh, the, the offspring produced through incest is worse over generations, over subsequent generations. So we can look at the kings of England and some of the royal families of like other places in Europe where they would only sleep within the family and how they would just get these like giant noses. And eventually they, they you know, and other, other things, weird, weird shaped skulls, mental disorders. Um, and eventually they, those houses often die off because they're actually unable to continue producing offspring because incest over time in particular has um, like exponentially bad genetic results. And so the, so the rescue for this is for those who say, yeah, there's, 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 there's no other humans around. And that's where I've leaned in the past, for sure. I'd still lean that way. I just don't know for sure which side I take. Um, they're going to say, hey, it just wasn't a problem early on. And maybe, and this is, this is hypothesis here, maybe what happened is after a few generations, God puts it into the conscience of mankind that now that we've got more of a body of humans established, incest is, is, is off limits because of the change of what's happened with the population. I mean, that's a little bit of, I mean, it really is just guesswork. I don't know. Maybe that's the case. <laughs> maybe not. Um, but it would explain things. It would work. So yeah, the, the genetic purity allowed for this to take place temporarily, both the genetic problems and the, the later work of God putting in our, putting it in our conscience that this is wrong is, is where things changed. The alternative view is answering the question of where did Adam get his wife by saying, well, there was other humans outside the garden. Well, that they're just, they were there. There were other humans outside the garden that, you know, Adam and Eve represent all of mankind and we're all genetically descended from Adam and Eve even today, but there were other humans that were existing outside the garden at the time. That's one other view. There's other views as well, but um, that's another perspective. The interesting thing here is the Bible just doesn't make it clear where Adam's wife came from. Like it's not abundantly clear. It could be 
Because it says that Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters. They had lots of other kids. And so, yeah, Adam could have got his wife from that, from, from those other kids. They lived for very long ages, according to the text, right? So if they lived for long ages, had tons of kids, there'd be plenty of opportunity for that. But we don't really know. Uh, the scripture doesn't make it clear. So I lean towards the more traditional conservative perspective on, on these issues. I definitely think the Bible's right about what it says here. I believe it's God's inspired word. But I've read enough from some other, like, honest Christians who love the word, who trust the word of God, from other perspectives that do kind of challenge some of those older views I've had and make me wonder if I was right. And I'm not resolved on it. So I'll just present you with a couple of things to think about. I'm sorry that I, I, I can't be of more help on that issue. I truly am. I wish I understood it better. All about Christ has a question. Hi, Pastor Mike. Only by the spirit can one believe. Can this be considered gaslighting? This is in quotes. Only by the spirit can one believe. He says, can this be considered gaslighting um, the unbelievers and a way of compensating for a lack of enough evidence? Please help my pain. I'm struggling. Um, I think that this is coming from a Calvinist perspective and I'm not a Calvinist. So all about Christ, I'm going to have to say I don't think that what people mean by the phrase, only by the Spirit can one believe, I don't think I would agree with what some people at least mean by that phrase. Because some people think what it means is um, you actually have to be regenerated before you believe. Which would mean that the only thing that tips the scale between belief and unbelief is a work of God in regenerating you, you become born again, and then now you inevitably believe. This is what R.C. Sproul said, and forgive me, Calvinist, before you tell me, there's no Calvinism, Mike. Like, R.C. Sproul, <laughs> I think you would call a Calvinist probably, he said that this was like the key issue in Calvinism is that regeneration is before faith. You regenerated before you believe. And so when they use the phrase, only by the spirit can one believe, many people, what they mean by that, Calvinists in particular, what they mean by that is you're, you become born again and then you believe. And so the only difference between the believer and the non-believer is being born again. Um, so you say, hey, this can this be considered gaslighting unbelievers in a way of compensating for a lack of evidence? Um, I, I, would, I would push back on that. I would say we're not, we're not saying, even if I was Calvinist, it wouldn't be... This is, it's, see, there's no evidence and I'm, I'm trying to compensate for no evidence because on Calvinism, the issue is not the evidence. It's the person's heart. You will never believe you will, you will willfully reject God. I'm not a Calvinist, but let me pretend for a second. You are going to willfully reject God, no matter the evidence until you become born again. And then you will absolutely receive God because that's the nature of his irresistible grace. Um, so it's not about evidence. So you could be a Calvinist and say, hey, there's a mountain of evidence. You just aren't receiving it because of your hard heart. Well, I mean, you could you could say that. And that would be true of, of everybody who's not saved. And um, I, I would lean that way if I was Calvinist. I would say it that way. I'd say it's not that there's a lack of evidence. I think there is a lot of evidence personally. And I think there's also the pull of the Holy Spirit towards a person. So we have evidence and the internal work of the Spirit in a person's life. And so there's a lot going on there. But I... Would um, I would I would look at this phrase differently. So here's how I would affirm the phrase, only by the Spirit can one believe. This is at least my perspective for you to consider. I would affirm that um, that the um, that the work of the Holy Spirit is active when the gospel is preached in someone's life, and that unless the Spirit was working, you wouldn't believe. 
but I don't affirm that you actually that the work of the spirit here is regenerating you. I think that you have a real decision to make in that you can accept or reject the work of the spirit. And so it's only by the spirit that you will believe, but of course you have a choice about whether to believe or not. I don't think any of this has anything to do with the evidence. So the background of your question seems to be this idea that is there really evidence for Christianity or is there not? And obviously for those who know my ministry, I think there's a mountain of really good evidence for Christianity. And I, I don't think that that evidence is enough to convince everybody. But this is not just because of the work of the Spirit. This is also because human beings just don't believe everything the evidence tells them. Like, we, how much evidence do we need to show us that we don't believe everything the evidence tells us? Like, this is something that's gone on forever. It, it, this, is, this is why we don't all have the same political views. We could all look at the same story in the news and we interpret it completely differently. Is that a problem of the evidence or are there other issues going on in our hearts and minds, such as prejudice, bias, pre-commitments, spiritual warfare, um, things like that. And so, yeah, um, I think there's tons of evidence. I, I don't hold to the Calvinist view. And so, but if I did, I would still think it's not exclusive of evidence. Number 12. I really hope that helped you out, buddy. Uh, Between the Ditches says, Youth camp in two weeks. Suggestions for ministering to teenagers. Uh, it's impossible, man. It can't be done. <laughs> um, suggestions for ministering to teenagers at youth camp. Um, like, I've been, to, I've been to more camps than I can count. Like, I went to so many youth camps that it was just, the kids would be all excited about it. And I was like, oh boy, here comes another camp. Because <laughs> for leaders, especially leaders who have a lot on their shoulders at, 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 that, at those events, it's, it's very much a labor. Uh, it's, not, it's not like you go for vacation. <laughs> you wish you could go on vacation after, which never happened, by the way. Churches should probably give their youth leaders some time off after they should they should pay for the volunteers to go if possible and they should give the everybody some time off if possible after the camp. I'm just saying it would be healthy. At any rate, um the um the things we did at camp to minister to the kids was mostly just spending time with them and so we would do we would do, we called it family time and I would have set aside time uh, pretty much every day where unless it was like a super packed day that day where we would all get together as a church everyone was supposed to be there right and we would just hang out we would we would do something play the telephone game or we'd, we'd play ninja or these different games we would just spend time together as a church because in my view when the kids leave the camp the relationships that i care the most about them building are the ones with each other in a christian environment that they will actually take home but also i want them to build with me, they see me teaching all the time or leading worship, but they don't often get just practical time together to build connection. So that can be really helpful. We did, we called it family time. I didn't take away all their time to play or something like that, but I, I made that a priority. Also, um, you know, if you could schedule individual conversations with students where you're like, hey, every day I'm going to take two kids aside and just go on a walk with them. Hey, hey, come, come with a walk with me for a little bit. And I'll just ask you, how's your camping going? What things are on your mind? And that can be a great opportunity to minister to them. I, obviously, this should be gender-based and you should do it carefully and thoughtfully. Um, but, but leaders taking students aside to just chat with them 
you know, that can be really good. Also recapping, we found to be really helpful after a night at a camp where they had like, say a speaker talking to gather in your cabins and just openly chat about it. what do you guys think uh, about the speaker? And during all this, you're not looking for right answers. You're looking for them to share. Right? And then through that, you will give, get information you can use to help guide and direct, but you're, you're looking really for them to just open up. So those are some of the things that we would, that we would do. Um, that may, maybe some of those things will be helpful to you. Number 13, this is from Joshua Bolton, who says, why does the devil bother to tempt people to sin if they're already saved? What's the gain for him? Um, I heard an analogy once about the devil that I thought was pretty good. And I think it was from John Corson. But the, uh, the analogy was, you know, you're at a pool party. All your friends are there. Family's hanging out. And you see two big dudes coming up to you. And they got that look in their eye. And you know what's about to happen. You're about to go in the water. You know you're about to be thrown into the water. And so you think to yourself, I can't stop them from taking me into the water. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take as much of them with me as I can. And so you grab and you try to pull and, you, and you, your victory is not in having victory. It's in bringing them with you. Now on a less playful note, this is Satan's situation. He's raging against God. He's opposed to God. He wants his own kingdom. Now, he will not be able to have a lasting kingdom, but he can cause as much harm as possible to God's kingdom. And so I think that this is it. This, there's, he's called the adversary because he takes an adversarial position towards Christians, towards God, and towards the world built based on building up his own kingdom. It's the ultimate narcissism where everybody else's value is only in how they impact and affect Satan, right? And so, um, so yeah, the, um, the question, uh, why does the devil bother to tempt people to sin if they're already saved? What's the gain for him? It still causes harm. It causes them harm. It puts them uh, under his control, at least in some sense. And so it's like a win for him. Number 14, Kaylee Witten has a question. Kaylee says, in Philippians 3.12, what is Paul referring to when he says, I press on to make it my own? Make what his own? Help me, I'm really confused. All right, let's look at this one together. Philippians. Oops, just a second, I'll bring this up. Chapter 3, verse 12. Here it says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me, has made me his own. All right, I'm going to back up because once you, when you read this verse, the thing that occurred, and, and Kaylee, I'm sure you already have thought of this and you've probably done this, but for everybody here, uh, the thing that you notice is that you need context. You can just feel that you don't have enough data. We've got to read more of the text. I'm going to back up to Philippians chapter three, verse one. Okay, he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God by the worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, now he's going to talk about this a bit. How he could, but he won't. But he could have had confidence in his flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That was a really big deal, and they were not looked at as bad guys by, their, by the people at the time. They were looked at as like, wow, the super spiritual guys. 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This is obviously a bad thing, but it, he can show his religious zeal in his former life through it. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That is as far as humans were concerned. Now, he talks elsewhere about the internal righteousness that he, he didn't have. But whatever gain I had in that former life, apart from Christ, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is what he wants. This is Paul's goal. He wants to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But there's more. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means, any means possible, I may attain, and here's the answer to your question, the resurrection from the dead. Paul's interested in eternal life that he doesn't just see as heaven, but he sees as the resurrection, the, the, the new creation that he's going to be part of for all eternity, right? Inhabiting an actual body, a glorified body. That's the thing he looks to attain. Now, he hasn't already obtained it. The resurrection is not there yet. Now, he's in Christ. He's a, he's a Christian, but he hasn't got the resurrection yet. So not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, right? He's not a sinless perfectionist, but I press on to make it my own. Well, some would say this perfect just means he's not fully matured in Christ. I think that includes uh, sinlessness that we will eventually have. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Uh, brothers, I don't consider that I've, um, that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, that's his his previous religious claims and his previous self-righteous attitudes um, and straining forward to what lies ahead, that is the resurrection. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So, um, so I think he's talking about, yeah, man, I'm going for the resurrection. It's not about this world, and it's not even just about disembodied heavenly experience. It's about the future resurrection that we have in Christ, that this is a glory that's coming that is absolutely worth the loss of everything else we could possibly lose in this world. Number 15, this is Trent Lancaster. Do you think the rapture and the second coming could be different events? I've heard some Christians suggest this, explaining how the rapture will come before the tribulation. Um, yeah, those are called pre-trib believers or, you know, people who have a pre-tribulational position. They think that there's a, the rapture and seven years later, the second coming. Now there's another group mid-trib or pre-wrath who think, you know, this sort of seven year tribulation, either that it's not seven years or, or halfway through it at three and a half years, that's where believers are raptured. And then the wrath of God more intensely comes down. And then at the end of that, the second coming. Um, one of the criticisms of the rapture view has been that the that this kind of postulates two more comings of Christ. That, yeah, and I'm just giving everybody the data here so they know where Trent's coming from, I think, on this. Um, that there is two more comings of Christ. One of them is a coming for the church, the rapture. The other one is coming in judgment of the world where every eye will see him. But every eye won't see him. One is more of a secret event, right? Only believers know about it, although everyone's going to notice that they're suddenly gone. And then the other one is a public event where every eye sees him and those who have rejected him are going to be mourning. Um, 
Now, it's important to recognize that within, within the body, genuinely within the body of Christ, real believers here who hold to the, to the essentials of the faith have a lot of different views on the end times. Some are post-millennial. They think Jesus comes back not even, not even then, but much, much later at the end of a millennial reign. Others are amillennial. They see the millennium as kind of like metaphorical. Forgive me, amillennialists. Your views are rather complicated, so I'm just trying to summarize, and uh, hopefully that didn't do you harm. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, others, others are premillennial, which is my own persuasion, although I don't hold to it as hardly or strongly as I hold many other doctrines that I feel like I, like how, how Jesus saves us on the cross, I hold that very strongly. When the coming of Christ is, the rapture, these types of things I hold much more loosely. The fact of his coming I hold very strongly, as every Christian should, but the timing and the events around it, understandably, there's discussion. The way I look at it is this way, personally. Um, you know, we had tons of prophecy about the first coming of Christ, and yet a lot of people had misconceptions about it. It makes sense that in the future, with the second coming of Christ, there'll be a number of misconceptions because of how we read a verse and how we interpreted a passage that will become more clear. It'll all happen, but you might find that you were you were assuming some things and then be surprised. We, we'll all probably have something to learn when the second coming happens. Um, so do I think that the rapture and the second coming could be different events? I have, have yet to do a thorough study on the topic, raised very strongly in a pre-tribulational rapture you know, tradition. Um, having looked into it a, a little bit more deeply, it challenged those views, but I don't have a solid position anymore, which is annoying. Like it's gotten me in trouble <laughs> and it will get me more trouble because I'm here. I'm talking about it again. Um, I don't have a solid position on that. Not at all because I doubt the word of God, but because I'm not so sure what the consistent interpretation is. And <clears throat> I have yet to do a project on that. And it's not even a priority for me, to be honest. Uh, eventually it will be. It's not right now. So do I think the rapture and second coming could be different events? It's, it's a, yeah, I think it's possible. The, is, it, is it true, though? Is it, are they different? I, I'm not, I don't have a conclusion there. Um, is it possible? Uh, here's how the rapture um, side would promote that it's possible. They'll say the second coming and the rapture are very different events in that Christ isn't coming to the earth in in a sense that should be called a second coming we don't have a second coming and a second second coming what we have is he comes for the church he brings us out of the world and that's not really a second coming at all like this doesn't have the qualities of the coming of christ it's just his he's he's doing this activity he's greeting us in the clouds uh you know we will meet the lord in the air he's not coming to the earth we meet the lord in the air and so they'll say that's not doesn't count as a second coming, so that's not really a challenge to that view. Logically, I think that that can work. The question that follows that's more important is when you harmonize all the scriptures that talk about these issues and study them carefully, what do you get? And on that, I just don't know. Um, so I'll abstain from trying to tell people what to think on that until I know better. Number 16, Philip Lancaster says, Hello, Pastor Mike. I was wondering... Is it biblical to close your eyes and bow your head while you pray, or is that a tradition made up with time? By the way, can't wait for the Hebrews study. Philip, me either, man. I'm like so excited to get into Hebrews. I find it, for me, life-giving, life just encouraging and uplifting to do verse-by-verse -verse study, whereas projects are always more taxing. It's just something about the nature of God's word and just digging in and getting these beautiful gems, careful verse-by-verse -verse analysis of a book that just feeds me spiritually. Um, can't wait to get into that and see it feed others as well because God's word is just that good. 
Um, <clears throat> so is it biblical to close your eyes and bow your head? Well, we have examples of all sorts of prayer in the Bible. So if we're looking at examples, we have lots of different things. Jesus would often lift his, at least in, on numerous times in scripture, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and prayed. That's interesting. But there's other times where he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he falls on the ground and he's sweating great drops of blood. And I think probably his head was down as he was praying there. Maybe he, maybe he was lifted up as well. There's times where, um, is it Hannah who's praying about having a kid and she hasn't been able to have a kid and her husband's like, hey, I'm, and I, am I not good enough for you? This is, um, I believe, Samuel's mom. And she is weeping and muttering with her. She's speaking very quietly and um, she's praying kind of like brought down. There's also a, um, a man who Jesus talks about praying in one of the parables. And he says, you know, Pharisee and a tax collector come to come to the temple. One, he stands before God. And he's like, oh, I thank you. I'm not like other men or it's like this lame tax collector. And the tax collector, he bows and it says he would not even lift his eyes up. He's, he looks down at the ground. And there he prays in repentance and his prayers received. My point here is that there isn't a rule about how your posture in prayer is supposed to be, but there is an example in scripture that posture in prayer seems relevant. So if there's not a rule about it should be this way, but it does seem relevant, then I think your posture in prayer should be relevant to whatever situation you're in. When I'm alone, I don't, and I'm just praying. I don't, I don't necessarily close my eyes and bow my head, but when I'm in a group, I do because it's distracting to me and others. Like I, I have a friend who, when they pray, they, they'll look around the room while they're praying. And I find that this is distracting to me as I'm praying and I'm trying to think about the Lord. And this is a social issue. It's, it's not like it's actually a problem. It's just for me, I'm just going to close my eyes. <laughs> I think that that can be a useful thing at that moment especially if you are used to just closing your eyes when you pray. Um, but I've had other times where there's leaders in the room, especially like you're doing security in your church. Don't you close your eyes while we're praying. You can pray with your eyes open. There's no rule against that. But you got it. You actually have to keep looking around because that's exactly when crazy psycho number 12 is going to attack. <laughs> it's when everybody's closed, got their eyes closed. So yeah, the, the things, you know, it's relevant, but there's no rule about it. If you're rejoicing before God, why don't you lift your your eyes and your hands to God? If you're in, in sorrow and grief, why don't you lower your head? Let your body reflect your heart because that's part of our communication with others and with God is allowing our bodies to reflect what's going on in our hearts. And be mindful of the people around you. Maybe I want to stand up and shout as I pray, but maybe that would be disruptive to the environment I'm in. And I care about people, so maybe I'll do that somewhere else. All right, number 17, Serge Dimidenko says, or is it Sergey? I don't know. It's S-E-R-G-E. It's pronounced Ser. No, that's probably the only thing he's not pronounced. How can we believe in the doctrine of original sin and also believe that if a child dies, they go to heaven? Inheriting original sin from Adam makes every child that dies unredeemed. Um, I have two answers on this. So one is that... Um, you you would just you would just hold that God, you know, sovereignly wipes original sin from the life of every child. That's I don't see the logical problem with that perspective. There's certainly been plenty of people who felt that way in the past. Um, someone like even John MacArthur, who, who has a very very Calvinistic doctrine and understanding of original sin, 
um, he's going to say, yeah, the, every child goes to be with the Lord. Why? Because God has revealed that he just does it that way. Oh, but how can you do it that way? Well, you can, you know, keep asking how and why, why, why questions, which are valid to ask to a point, but it doesn't undo the fact that God can simply do that if he wants. Um, but, and here's where I'll, full disclosure, I legitimately have a different understanding of original sin, which I believe there's some, there's, there is original sin. There's the, the impact of sin on all mankind, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You cannot be redeemed apart from the grace and forgiveness of Christ. But I do have a different understanding of original sin than the total depravity version that we see in Calvinism and Arminianism. And so this, here's a disclaimer, guys, I am the oddball here, I think, compared to a lot of other believers who would consider themselves all in the same camp as me about the gospel, right? This is to me not a gospel issue, right? But it's, but it's still a relevant issue. In my series uh, of two videos I did on children and salvation, I believe it's the second video where I get into the topic of original sin and I explain my perspective on it and the scriptures that are supporting it. I would encourage you guys to check that out. I'll put a link in the video description down below. You, you'll need to hear it in detail. There's no 10 second summary of it, except to say um, that the, um, the nature of original sin is in my mind, um, brokenness in my moral inclinations, right? And in the, in the moral integrity of my, of, of my actions. When kids hit certain ages, they actually are accountable for expressing that brokenness because they are responsible. They hit a, they, not just an age, I should say, when they hit a, hit a certain degree of responsibility, which God knows for each individual it would be different, then they're personally accountable. Um, and before that, I think that they're covered under the redemption that comes through Christ, from Christ to all creation. That I Anyway, I explain it more in the video. I, it's, I feel as though I, I'm going to confuse people by trying to summarize those views too abruptly. So mods, somebody out there, put please in the chat the, I think it's the second video about kids and infant salvation. And I deal with this in detail. I hope that someone can post that and I'll put it down below in the, in the your video description for you guys to check out after the stream. If you're so inclined, you can hear my case for that. Number 18, uh, here's another parent warning. All right, if you're a parent or if you're a kid, this might be the wrong time to listen. Go check out somebody else. All right. I discovered my wife watches porn. This comes from an anonymous question. Any advice on how to approach her about this? I struggle with it too, and I hesitate addressing it with her because I think her viewing it puts her in the mood for intimacy. Um, there will be costs. There will be costs if you yield to this because you think it helps in some way. There will be costs. Scripture says, do not be deceived. For what a man sows, he will reap. There's a reason why the scripture says, don't be deceived. It's because sin so often seems to help us in some way. But this helps me. This is bringing a benefit that I see in my life. And so that in mind, there needs to be serious repentance from both of you guys, um, the uh, there there is no option of let me just let me just ignore all of this because I think that maybe it'll um, it'll help in some way. It puts you in the mood. There will be costs. What a man sows, he will reap. What you sow, you reap. What your wife sows, she reaps. 
what your marriage sows, your marriage reaps. So you got to deal with it, man. You, you absolutely have to deal with it. Yeah, number 19. Alexander Bukad says, what is the difference between vision and imagination? I don't know. That's a good question, Alec. Uh, vision and imagination. I mean, I would just look, you know, consider the usage of the terms. Vision sometimes refers to my plans for the future, whereas imagination can refer to whatever I'm thinking about at the moment. So maybe there's the difference. Um, or maybe you're asking, let me just guess, Alec, because I'm trying to think of how this relates to a Christian-specific kind of questions. Biblical issues is, is there a difference between God having given me some sort of vision versus me imagining a plan that's not really from God? What's the difference there? And I, I think the difference, if there's, if that's your question, the difference is the source. Um, if it's from God, then it's a vision from God. If it's not from God, then it's, I mean, technically we could still be a vision. It's just not from God, right? It, it just comes from me. How do you test the source then is the, is the, uh, is the question. And I, I would ask things like, how reliable is this person's track record when they say that God showed them something? How clear is the thing that God showed them or is it super vague? There's going to be this great landfall of blessings. Your time has come. God's given me the vision. Your appointed blessings have arrived. It, it, and it's like super vague. Uh, and okay. How accountable is the person going to be if the vision appears to not really be from God? Is it ratified by other believers who are spirit, spiritual, who are basically wise and spiritual? Is this being ratified by them as well? Um, is it consistent with scripture? Is it inconsistent with scripture? And like for These are like a bunch of questions you have to ask about anytime someone says God's speaking to me. Alec, I hope those help you. I feel like I haven't really answered your question that well, but I hope you find some aid in it. Number 20, this is Sergeant Ender. Last question for today. Can you, ex uh, can you explain casting lots? Since God never explicitly tells us that we can do this to determine his will, is it unbiblical? Um, well, there are situations where, oh, by the way, casting lots is like anything that's randomized. So rolling dice would be casting lots. So it'd be something like rolling dice. Um, using a, you can think of, a, here's one, using a magic eight ball, right? The magic eight ball, which is, it's a gimmick, right? But it kind of gives you these, these answers. Um, is that from God? There's a proverb that says that every answer from, when you cast lots, every answer is from the Lord. And the, this is the book of Proverbs it has to be taken with wisdom, which many people don't. And it doesn't mean that you should simply roll dice to make every decision in your life. And that way, you know, every decision you make, like you're like, you're like Batman's two face. <laughs> he flips the coin and wherever it lands, that's what I'm going to do next. And you're going to like assign God's divine providence. What it is saying is that God's in control of the random things in life. But what it's not doing is suggesting you roll dice every time flip a coin every time you're making a decision and that God's going to guide you. Does that mean you should never, ever, ever flip a coin? Um, there's two scenarios where maybe you do. One is, here, I'll give it to you from Proverbs. Um, this is an interesting proverb. Here we go. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders let me, let me share with you. Here's New King James Version. A little different, different reading. Casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. But the basic idea here is when you have two powerful people who can't change their minds, they're stubborn, 
flipping a coin or casting lots is a way of uh, moving it away from them battling for their wills and them yielding to the results of a random a random thing and then trusting you know god's in control of even what's random and so that can be a way of re reducing contention you know when you can't agree with somebody on an issue and you decide oh, let's just cast lots let's just roll the dice let's flip a coin that can be a way of reducing the tension the interpersonal tension that can be a very wise thing and so that's one time to cast lots does that mean that God directed the result every time? Like it was God's perfect will and we should trust that? Um, I, I think that reality is more complicated than that. God's ultimately in control, but we shouldn't assign his divine intervention into each random event in that sort of exhaustive divine determinism type way. I hope those words made sense to at least some people. And um, the other situation where you, where you could cast lots would be simply... Um, because you just, you don't know, uh, you don't know the right answer. And every, you, you seem to be, have a choice between mutually good things and you can't seem to decide. Now, maybe you can't decide because there's powerful people arguing on both sides, but in the book of Acts chapter one, we have them casting lots for deciding who will be the next apostle to replace Judas. And they pick this guy, Matthias. And what they do is they actually have two contenders for this position and they cast lots to decide which one it will be. Now, some people think they shouldn't have done this. I don't take that view. I know the reasons. I think that, I think that that's de it's deficient for casting a negative light on those issues. Well, they hadn't had the Holy Spirit yet. And like, I, I know those issues. I, I think it's deficient. But what we don't see is that them using this as a regular practice. And there's a danger in Christians taking something that happened one time in Acts 1, we never see again after that, and turning this into like your regular practice. Right? Like, where will we do evangelism today? We could go over here, over there, over there. All right, that's one, that's two, that's three. Roll a die. There's no three-sided dice, are there? Anyway, let's say you roll, roll the die. And um, you, you figure it out that way. And then you're like, where should I go to lunch? Like, like, I don't know, I could do this, I could do that or that. You roll a die. Who should I marry? That girl or that girl? I don't know, roll a die. This is, is an unstable person who refuses to make decisions based on wisdom. It's not the same as someone who occasionally randomizes something trusting in God's ultimate control. I hope that that helps you out, buddy. Um, does God ever explicitly tell us we should do lots to determine his will? No, it's a lot more complicated than that. I would never make it a rule that you can never do it, but I also wouldn't assume that every time I do it, I'm getting God's divine, determined, inspired response. Because even with like the high priest and you're thinking of Urim and Thummim and how they would go and consult with the Lord, there was times where the answer was no answer from God. So it obviously wasn't just random and assuming it was God. There was some way for them to determine God was speaking versus not. And flipping a coin doesn't provide that opportunity if you're assuming it's always God giving you a direct answer. So there's a problem there. Um... That's about it. You guys, listen, I will not be with you this Monday, but that's because I'm prepping for a video I'm doing with Cultish. Cultish is a, is a program where they, that it's part of Apologia Studios and they tackle all kinds of different topics related mostly to fringe and strange beliefs, or at least beliefs that are not typically covered in churches. And the belief we're going to be talking about is the, the idea that, and I'm be very careful here, please hear me. It's the idea that the Bible teaches the earth is flat. That's the belief. It's not the question of whether the earth is flat. That's a different issue. It's not the question of whether science shows the earth is flat or not. That's a different issue. It's not about whether NASA has conspiracies. That's a different issue. I'm only dealing with the issue of whether the Bible says the earth is flat. We're tackling the verses that flat earth 
you know, proponents usually use. We're going to do it in a loving and gracious way. They're part, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, not here to mock and ridicule. Okay. There's, there's so much tension on this issue on both sides. We're going to just look at the verses in context and I'm going to do that on the cultish program. We're recording it this week. I don't know when it will go up on their actual videos. Um, I think we're just recording it. So I'll let you guys know in the meantime. That's why I'm not doing a video this Monday. The following Monday, I do plan on doing the next Women in Ministry uh, video, and it will be on Galatians 3.18, where it says there's no, me no, male or no male and female in Christ. And some use this to say, look, this is why you can't have requirements for gender requirements and leadership, because there's no male and female in Christ. It's an overarching theme for what it means to be Christian. You're violating that when you have these complementarian rules about who can be in leadership, at least some leadership positions. And I'll be tackling that um, the following Monday. That's all. That's it. All right. God bless you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, um, read the word more. I mean, I, this is not, don't forgive me, that you always hear this as a guilt trip. It's always a guilt trip. Maybe read the Bible more. It's always a guilt trip. I don't mean it that way. I want to remind you about the spiritual health benefits of being regularly in the word of God. And then maybe encourage you that what if just for a week you you set aside time, not just all time you spend, say, on social media or other things, but time that you spend on that that you think doesn't really do anything for you? Just for one week, set that time aside and use it reading the word instead. And just for the spiritual benefit. I don't know, maybe it'll become a long-term habit. All right, that's it. <laughs>